and welcome to the Faith Movement Podcast, a platform from where we can share our talks, reflections and discussions with you. The Faith Movement aims to advance understanding of the Catholic faith in the modern world. To find out more about us, visit www.faith.org.uk. This time we will be sharing with you the second in our monthly series of talks on the theme of giving an account of the hope that is in us. This talk was given by Father David Barrett, Director of Human Formation at St John's Seminary, Warnish, on the 11th of February 2021. The talk is entitled, The Dignity of the Human Person. Yes, it's funny how um, we're human beings are able to talk about the things we like, like ice cream. Um, I found during the first lockdown, I don't know how you found it, those of you who, um, I, I, I've, I've ended up watching every evening an episode of um, Montalbano, Inspector Montalbano, and a large tub of ice cream. Um, and I have gone through various varieties in, in this village uh, because there are, there are farm shops nearby which sell their own ice creams. Um, there are all sorts of different places. The point is I have a lot of choice and um, that choice is great. It's great to have so much choice. Um, but it, it's the very fact that we can invent something like ice cream that always strikes me. And it's not just ice cream, but there's so many things we invent, but probably ice cream is one of the greatest things. But let's not go down that too, too far. I remember when I was studying in Rome um, <clears throat> about, oh, this would have been about 2007, I, I did a, a Latin course with um, a, a, a very famous priest called Father Reggie Foster. And I think Father Reggie was a great teacher of Latin. He was American, he wore a boiler suit, um, and he was quite an extraordinary character. I think he was obsessed with Latin. I think he spoke Latin better than he spoke English, or his version of English, which is called American. And he ended up, um, I remember one, one lecture, he said, Latin, he said, is the best thing that's ever happened to the human race. And this little, little Filipino nun, Indian nun put up her hand and said, Father, what about Jesus Christ? And he said, well, okay, it's the second best thing that's ever happened to the human race. Um, but again, even something like Latin is an extraordinary construction. As an indication, all of these things are little indications of, of I suppose, the, the theme of the talk tonight, which is, um, I'm gonna share my screen eventually, if I can get it right. Um, which our, our talk tonight is, is going to be focusing very much on the dignity of the human person. And behind that question, I hope you can all see it. Give me a thumbs up. Yes, good, good. Okay, that's great. Um, the dignity of the human person. Behind this question is, well, what does it mean to be a human being? And what's, what's different about us? Um, is there anything special about the human being? Forgive the picture there of Father Ross. I do apologize for having that up there, um, but I, I thought it would be quite useful for everyone. Um, but the, the question really is, is there anything special about us human beings? Um, certainly the way we are talked about at times, we're almost talked about as if we are some kind of disease on the earth, first of all. We almost talked about as if we are the ones responsible for disease, for climate change, 
And maybe we are in some ways, but behind that is a deeper question, as we shall see. And then sometimes we're talked about as a disease, and then sometimes we're talked about as if um, we're just animals, maybe just animals who are not spiritual, um, who evolved from other previous species, and who ultimately um, have no, um, no real difference uh, between us and other species. We've evolved from the apes, which is a very highly developed form of ape. And this is a, a very attractive uh, philosophy um, in the world today. Um, but what, of course, is significant about it is that it is a philosophy and other animals don't do philosophy. But we'll come back to that in a minute or two. Um, are we, basically, are we just more advanced monkeys? Um, the theory of evolution, as Father Stephen Dingley would have talked to you last week, a bit about the fact that just from looking at the universe and understanding and accepting the age of the universe and understanding science, we can come to a knowledge of the existence of God. Um, but it's argued that with that comes a price by accepting some sort of form of theory of evolution, we're perhaps showing that human beings are not special. We're not unique. Um, I always, I love um, the Psalms. And I suppose I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't, but, so, but I do love the Psalms in particular. Uh, and I love particularly Psalm 8. And, and Psalm 8, um, it reads like this. How great is your name, O Lord our God, through all the earth. Your majesty is praised above the heavens. On the lips of children and of babes, you have found praise to fall your enemy, to silence the foe and the rebel. And then there's this. When I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you arranged, what is man that you should keep him in mind? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him little less than a God. With glory and honour you created him. You crowned him. Gave him power over the works of your hand. Put all things under his feet. But is that true? The theory of evolution almost implies that we're not any, any different from any other species, that we're not above them, um, that in no shape or form could we said to have um, any characteristics that mark us out as different from other species. And part of what we're going to be doing tonight is, is thinking about that a little bit, but also showing, just through looking, observing um, human behaviour, um, exactly why um, we are different and what the dignity of the human person consists of. And it's very much rooted in that difference that we have from any other species, I would argue. Now, just as a brief overview from last time, hopefully Father Stephen covered these, um, but what you probably would have seen last time was a sense in which the universe is a cosmos and we can make sense of the world around us, we just can. Um, I think that's an indication of something unique about us, the fact that we can, we can understand the universe as a whole. We, have a, we can conceive it in our minds as a whole. We can understand it and we can see not just it as a whole, but we can see that um, it has a beginning and all um, of the um, elements of the universe are related to everything else. So the 
every aspect of being in the universe is, is related, it's interrelated. Everything's related to everything else. And, and we know this is true. This isn't just something, so this is not just some form of psychological projection where we make sense of chaos. In fact, it's chaos up there, but our minds are making sense of it. No, because we apply the knowledge we discover about the universe in our technology and in inventing things. And we're gonna come back to that point as well. Um, but we know that what we perceive about the universe makes sense. And that the universe is a cosmos. It's a cosmos that's characterized by having one origin where everything is related to everything else. And of course, this is where um, it's lovely to quote that passage from uh, the book of Genesis. We'll be following the book of Genesis in our readings this past week at mass, the first reading of every mass. And we've gone through the month of creation. And the point about the book of Genesis is that it, it gives us, you might say, the spiritual insight of the essential truths of what we need to understand about creation. First of all, it comes from God, God created, but there was also a process. And also it's good. God saw that it was good. And good in the sense of something moral, but also something that is it's just um, more than moral. It's just good for something to exist. And the universe makes sense. It, it's good, it's not just a chaos. It is more than a chaos. It is a cosmos. And it's good that it exists. And it's good, of course, as we will see, that we exist as well. Um, just as a little aside, it's worth saying, you know, um, many of the early church fathers did not understand, did not see um, the book of Genesis as sheer history. Um, they said it was um, language used to describe what really happened. Okay, so that's worth just bearing in mind. If anyone wants to ask, ask about that, they can ask about that later. Okay, so I've just kind of going over what Father Stephen very briefly said, but because it's important to understand what we're going to say next today. And what we find is that science reveals as a pattern, a pattern to the universe, and the laws of the universe reveal um, a real pattern. Everything in the universe reflects this pattern, and we call this pattern a law, a unity law of control and direction. Okay, so I hope you have seen that a bit last week. But the point about the unity of law, the control and direction, is there's two essential things to remember about it. Okay, so what we're saying about this unity law of control and direction is the whole of the universe is related to everything else. In the universe, everything is related to everything else that it is it makes sense that there are laws that make sense in the universe it is not a universe of sheer chaos it is not a universe of chance where anything can happen no things happen for a reason we can explain why and how things happen that's a sign of law in the universe and this what we're saying about the whole of the universe is that it has um, an overall pattern which we call the unity law, control and direction. And what is this pattern? It's twofold. I would suggest everything needs an environment where it can exist. And especially in terms of living being, living matter, where it can live and thrive and find its purpose, okay? So as to use a, a very simple example, you take the fish out of water, the fish will die. You take the plant out of the soil, it will die. 
you transport um, uh, um, the plant to a very cold place like Coke Bridge at the moment, and it will die. Okay, um, it, it, it's not going to survive for long. Um, um, so that that's the first thing. So we, everything needs an environment, and when when it's taken away from its environment, it will no longer live or thrive, and it won't find its purpose. And in evolutionary terms, um, when an animal can no longer adapt to its environment, it will die out. Okay. Which is another way of looking at this from the point of view of the environment. The environment is what gives meaning and purpose. It's the context, the, the, the programming, you might say. It's what programs uh, every being within it. Okay. So um, I think that those are two important principles for understanding this unity law, control and direction, which is very much part of understanding where we're coming from in the faith movement. So what about the evolution of life? And, and there you'll see a very lovely picture taken from Harold Country Park near Olney, um, worth visiting. There's a nice um, um, bar there and there's some nice pubs to visit, but this is not an advert for visiting Buckinghamshire and Bedfordshire, you'll be pleased to know, um, but it's a beautiful place. Um, but what, what the, the evolution of life, uh, is it just a fluke? That's sometimes the way it's talked about, isn't it? That somehow, how life evolved on this planet was just a fluke. You get all sorts of wacky theories from uh, aliens dropped a few life particles on the planet through to the fact there's just, um, just something that happened or, or a comet passed nearby and somehow infected the planet and life evolved. What's fascinating is, is that we're searching for life on other planets. So it's an indication that maybe life isn't a fluke in the universe. We've, um, in my parish here, we've got a, 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 fascin a, a lady, a parishioner, who's a, who's a fairly famous astronomer, and she's involved with the search for life on Mars. Um, and um, she, um, I thought she, at the moment, uh, she, she's very excited about the landing of the next Mars rover on the 18th of, of March, I think it is. And she's going to be, um, it could be the 18th of February, but it might be the 18th of March. Anyway, um, and one of the things they're going to be doing there is, is taking samples from the soil into the rover. And then somehow they've got to try and find out some way of getting that back to Earth. But that's what she's involved in. But the point about it is that um, by searching, they're fairly, they're fairly sure there was water on Mars. And so there may well have been some form of life there. Um, so it's an indication that perhaps life, the evolution of life, isn't just a fluke, but rather the universe is primed for the evolution of life. Given the right conditions, given the right circumstances, life um, can evolve. And maybe our solar system is one of those places where the right conditions exist. Um, so it's just worth, just, uh, worth saying. What we do know is that our planet has produced an enormously rich and wealthy abundance of species of life, um, but so many different levels. It's incredible, really, it's extraordinary. And um, what we have seen is that um, simpler forms tend to develop into more complex forms of life. So we see that. 
Um, there's a rich variety of, of life on this planet, um, but from the simplest forms, more complex forms develop, which adapt and uh, which adapt and develop to, uh, 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 within a specific environment. But all follow this unity law that we're talking about. Everything needs an environment where it can live and thrive and find its purpose. And the environment gives this meaning and purpose to the environment. So some species develop and are able to survive. There's a principle, of, uh, according to Darwin, of the survival of the fittest. And that basically means those who are able to adapt well enough to the, to, to the changing environment around them are able to survive. And those who do not die out. Um, but it's the environment as well which gives this, this direction, you might say, in the development of life. And all the evidence that we see appears to point to human beings as having evolved as part of this process. Okay, so that's what much of the evidence that we have developed from, from some form of higher uh, primate, uh, non-ecclesiastical, of course, um, but some form, of, some form of, of higher primate we have, we have developed from. So all of that could say, could give us an, could, could uh, argue in favour of the idea that we're not different from any other species. Um, but we are different for many different reasons. And this is where I think it's just worth us um, going through a number of the reasons of, through observation, through observing human behaviour, how we are very, very different from any other, from any other species. First of all, Every other species of life depends on, on the environment, and we do too, but we also have a remarkable capacity to control and direct our environment. So our use of energy, I mean, from the earliest times, our use of fire, but the way as well we manipulate the environment through our agriculture, how we are able to tame other species and use them, how we're able to control energy um, from fire right up to nuclear energy or electricity or coal fire um, or, 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 or the use of gas uh, fire stations. There's so many different ways in which we actually control and direct our environment around us in a way that we don't find in any, any other species. So this says something that whereas other species live by instinct, that is, an instinctual set of reactions to their environment, we don't just live by instinct. We are actually able to do something more than live by instinct. We are able to have a certain power over our environment and control it. It's also worth saying at this point as well, we are able to damage our environment, again, in a way no other species does. We're able to damage and even destroy our environment quite deliberately. Um, we're able to misuse our world around us. And, um, and we see plenty of evidence of that around uh, in the world today. I think that's an indication that there's something different about us from any other species. No other species seems to do this. No other species seems to control and direct and even damage and harm their environment in the way that we human beings do. That's the first point of observation. Um, another point of observation is that we also, and we've seen it already, we can create new forms and new patterns. We're able to invent things. We're able to invent ice cream. We're able to invite, invent the wheel. 
we're able to invent forms of transport um, and highly developed forms of transport. We're able to create new forms and patterns that are not part of what naturally evolves in the world around us. So although an airplane, you might say, resembles a bird, it is not a bird. It is a complex set of, it is a, a construction of a complete, complex set of forms and patterns, which we're able to use and apply for um, our own purposes. Um, and this goes for many other things. Look at the things we're looking at at the moment. Um, I'm not talking about the faces, I'm talking about the computers, the cameras, the microphones, all of these new forms and patterns, which are not part and parcel of the natural progress of evolution. We don't see them in the rest of the material world. It's human beings that make them. It's human beings that, knew, that, um, that use them and make them and invent them. So we are able to create new patterns from the patterns of the world around us. I think that's an extraordinary thing that we are able to do. And we also see it in our, in our architecture, in our art, in so many different things we see in the world around us, um, in, 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 in our cooking, the very fact that we can create forms of food and blend elements together and create all sorts of splendid new things. I mean, there's um, Father Ross's Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I believe he enjoys, I've heard. There's a rumor out that he enjoys that. Um, well, that's definitely not natural, I assure you. Um, it has all sorts of, but it, it's, it's amazing that we can think about doing that. We can invent new forms, uh, even with food as well. We're able to blend food together, together and create, for example, wine and bread um, and chocolate and ice cream and so many different things and pasta. There's so many things we can do. We create new forms and patterns all the time. It's an indication that we're not, no other species does that, we do. We're also able to act freely in a way that no other species can. We are able to act beyond instinct. Um, so, you know, normally animals in their no, normal environment live, as we say, by instinct. They have times and seasons for mating or for migration. Um, we know that in, in, in normal circumstances, uh, for example, birds will quite will migrate south from our country um, at a certain point in the year. When I was a when I was a kid, we'd go to Ireland to my grandmother's farm, and every about towards the end of August, suddenly you'd see birds going south. You'd see birds gathering on the on the telegraph wire, and then heading south. You could see them doing it. And you still see that around here in Olney. Um, because we've got the river great, the great ooze going past, um, we see at, at birds often migrating. They do it, it's all, it, they don't choose to do it. Something is primed in their brains to say, right, now's the time to migrate, and they do. We actually are not subject to that, those kinds of times and seasons. We act beyond instinct we are actually able to act in a way that's different. Very fact, we can choose when we go on holiday, for example. It's a daft example, but it's a good example as well. We don't migrate. We can even go to places that are naturally dangerous to us. 
places that we normally wouldn't go to, we wouldn't normally migrate to for safety. We can go into inhospitable environments, whether it's, whether it's under the sea or to the North Pole or the South Pole or into the desert or even into outer space. Um, all of these things indicate that we act beyond instinct. We're able to act freely in a no way that no other species can. I'm going to come back to that um, point uh, a little bit later on, especially given some of the work that I've been doing in, in, in um, therapeutic counselling. Um, so there's some interesting observations to make about that. Um, but we'll come back to that just very briefly. Um, where are we now? Yes. We can study and know and understand matter at levels beyond the immediately visible. What that basically means is we can understand the atom. We can know that it exists. It's not immediately observable. No other species can do that. We're able to theorize about matter. We're able to theorize about the size of the universe or about the, uh, or we're able to do experiments. We're able to theorize and then do experiments to understand the basic building blocks of matter. No, we're able to go beyond the immediately visible. No other species does that. It indicates that there's something more to us than just the physical. There's something more to us um, than just um, what is immediately observable. There's something more to us that indicates a power of understanding that goes beyond the visible, that goes beyond instinct, that is able to create new patterns and inventions, that's able to control and direct our environment around us. We also create culture, language, art. Um, we engage in activities that go beyond um, what would normally be expected of an environment of, of an of an animal in this environment. An animal is 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 basically seeking to feed itself, to grow, and to pass on its genes, as um, Richard Dawkins would say. Well, we do much more than that. We get engage in activities that are not part of our survival, that are not essential to our survival um, at a physical level, but which fulfill us at a higher level. So it goes, that goes beyond the physical. The physical. So culture, art, language, music, opera, storytelling, um, all of these things that we do. Um, the very fact we can use language to describe language, the very fact that we can engage in poetry to describe our emotions at a different level, the fact that we're even aware of our emotions and we celebrate love and hate and fear and joy all of these things are indications that there's something more to us than just the physical. Um, the very fact we engage in animal rights campaigns, some people do, on behalf of animals. No other species does it. Animals do not campaign for other animals' rights. We human beings do. Uh, that's an indication that there's something more to us um, than just being physical, than just being animals. You know, the lion doesn't stop but it's about to pounce on the antelope and say, is this antelope protected? Am I allowed to kill it? No, it works by instinct. It acts by instinct. It seeds food and it kills and it eats. We are different, apart from Father Ross with his Kentucky Fried Chicken. But that's another story. Um, so we engage in activities that go beyond the natural programming, uh, we, we might say, of any other species. Um, and we pray. 
but also something significant. From the earliest, from the dawn of humanity, there's a lot of evidence that religion is part and parcel of human activity. The very fact that the earliest human beings buried their dead and often buried them um, in a fetal position, indicating that there was some kind of belief in, etern in eternal life. It is quite extraordinary. And anthropologists always puzzle and puzzle about this. Um, but religion, prayer, the very fact that most of humanity prays um, is an indication uh, of, of um, that there's something different to us. Of course, Richard Dawkins would want to say that religion is a disease. And he's a funny old fellow, Richard Dawkins, because on one hand, he wants to say that somehow religion is a disease, but then he wants to blame people for, for believing. He wants to say religion is an evil. And the problem with that, of course, is that it, it brings us face to face with the real issue, which is, are human beings free? Do we have free will? All of the activities we've been mentioning indicate we have a level of freedom with regard to the, uh, the material universe that no other animal has. Now, Richard Dawkins ducks the issue of freedom, really, under free will, um, because he doesn't want to discuss that. Because, of course, if religion is a disease, then we can't be blamed for it. It's just something we have. It's, it's a non-moral problem. And really, if it is a disease, then how can you attack people for having it? How can you blame the church? How can you attack the church for existing? Um, if it is something moral, if it is something that people can be blamed for, then we bring in the issue of freedom and of free will uh, and of morality. So the problem with Richard Dawkins, he wants to have his cake and eat it. Um, he wants to blame religion, but at the same time, he wants to pretend it's a disease. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. But he, uh, he dodges the issue of freedom and free will. All of the elements of behaviour that we're describing are indications that we human beings engage in, in free actions and, uh, and, and uh, freely in our behaviour in a way that no other species does. And it is not in keeping with the normal dynamics of survival of the fittest of trying to survive in a material world. There's more to us than that. And this is my little excursus, very briefly. Um, I've done a lot of work over the last eight years with people with addiction problems. And if, if, if the, there's a certain amount of evidence to say that addiction, um, say to alcohol, may well have some kind of genetic predis predisposition. That's fine. The problem, of course, just because you are genetically predisposed to be to, to uh, alcoholism doesn't mean that you are going to become an alcoholic. Because in order for that to be activated, you might say, the addiction, you also need a, a specific set of circumstances. Often um, something happening in your childhood, um, but also other, other factors as well. The point about all of that is when people are in addiction of any kind, they lose a part of their freedom. They experience that. So for example, the alcoholic will end up drinking and will find that he doesn't want to continue drinking, but just can't stop it. It's as if a bit of his free will is, mis is missing. 
in, psychologically it's a fascinating experience he knows in other areas of his life he is free to choose but when it comes to drinking he cannot choose he he just cannot stop and he'll only stop when he passes out or when there's no alcohol available um that's the only time he actually stops he or she i should say and um it's it's a horrible experience and it's not to be wished on from anyone for anyone but what is fascinating is that we know from the evidence in terms of, of therapy we know um of just just from the evidence that the one thing we know helps people get out of addiction is some kind of spiritual conversion we know that works nothing else seems to nothing else seems to work not just for alcoholics but also for other addictions um it is only through some spiritual conversion some relationship with a, a higher power um that people are able to come out of addiction and become free again um they not they won't go back to drinking they won't go back to using drugs or gambling they have to avoid that but they discover that actually they can choose not to do that and the only way that they're able to, to stay out of that addiction is by a relationship with some kind of higher power that's what alcoholics anonymous and all the 12 step groups are all about they're about giving people a relationship with god and it's through that relationship with god that the person stays sober nothing else seems to work so there's an indication there of how someone can lose their freedom but also how they can regain it and it's an indication to me of the spiritual nature of the human being that there's more to us than just the physical if there was not more to us than just the physical if we were just physical beings there's no way an alcoholic could stop drinking but they can but it's only through a process of spiritual conversion which indicates that there's more to us than just being physical we are also spiritual beings that's the point and i see that in in it's wonderful when you see people coming out of addiction um because they've discovered that their spiritual beings atheism doesn't work in 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 addiction <laughs> uh, most 12 step people will tell you that atheism just doesn't work at all so it's an indication that we are physical and as well as spiritual and the way we'd we'd um explain this in the faith movement is that we would say that in the history of evolution in the development of non-human brains in the history of evolution we find we don't find moments of freedom of creativity and of the wealth of activity we found find in human beings with the dawn of the advent of humanity there is an explosion of creativity an explosion of freedom an explosion of activity and of remarkably different activity from just survival activity and um, that is found in no other species it happens that we don't see little moments of it all along the path of evolution as we see new non-human brain brains grow we don't see that but we see it with with humanity we see with the development of the first human beings there's an explosion of freedom of creativity uh, which uh, is not to be found elsewhere and we would suggest one way of explaining this is that at a certain point in history the form of life that the the primate from which we immediately evolved was so developed and so um reached a certain niche in evolution that at the next moment of change in evolution the environment 
the environment would no longer be able to provide for it. It would kind of, um, you might say, develop beyond the capacity of the environment to control and direct it or to provide for it or program it. That's one way we would, this is what we would suggest. It's one way of explaining how it is we got here because no other explanation seems to make sense. And we would say this is part of God's plan. That in that moment, when there's going to be, um, uh, when, when, when is, there's conceived, uh, or about to be conceived, in the, in the womb of that primate, um, the next leap in evolution, where the brain would be too developed for the rest of the environment to handle, that's when the soul is created by God as part of his plan. And the soul is created to be, you might say, a new immediate environment for the brain in order to provide control and direction for its powers, for its ability. Um, otherwise, it would be out of step with the rest of um, with the rest of matter, with the rest of the environment, and no longer be able to survive there. And so we're saying that this, this is very much part of God's plan, and that this new creature, like is body and soul, but like everything else, we'll need a fuller environment. And that environment is God. And hopefully the other talks are going to explore that in, in more detail. Basically then, what we're saying about us human beings is that we are not just physical, we're spiritual. And all the evidence points us in that direction. And that, that there is one, there's a way of explaining um, the development of, uh, of, of us human beings that at a certain point of the evolution, God creates the soul um, at, the, at the moment of the conception of the next stage, which, which is us. And the soul acts as an, as an immediate environment for the brain, but we're not, we're not in two parts. The soul is created for the brain and for the body, and the body and, and the brain needs the soul uh, in order to actually to survive this change that, that, that takes place, this, this leap in evolution. And that therefore this new human being is related to God as well. God is going to be our environment. Um, and the way we work as human beings, we see that we work by knowledge. And um, so it means that we know in, our, any, we, we know in, in all our relationships, we need to have knowledge. In order to have a relationship with someone, we need to know them, we need to get to know them. And so we're going to need in our relationship with God, we're going to need him to reveal himself to us. We're going to need him to reveal to us who we are, because he's our environment. He's going to be providing for us what we need in order to grow and thrive. That's what any environment does. That's the nature of the uh, unity law of control and direction that we've been describing. And he's going to reveal to us how, we, how we're meant to live. And what does it mean to be a human being? What kind of activities are normal for us and natural for us and good for us? And what kind of activities are harmful to us? We're going to also need, if in any relationship, once we get to know someone, we also have the opportunity of getting to love them. We can delight in who they are. This is true in our relationship with God as well. God delights in us, but we will also delight in God's goodness and his truth. And we're going to find that he fulfills our purpose. And so we're going to love him for that as well. But in order to have knowledge and love, you need to have contact. 
So just as everything needs contact with its environment in order to thrive and grow, so we also need contact with God, our environment, if we're going to grow and if we're going to get to know him and to love him and to grow. Um, and this relationship, this contact with God, is going to give life to us. Um, and we need to be in God's presence and have direct contact with him. So what is that all saying? It's saying, ultimately, that the dignity of every human person rests on our unique identity. And that identity is that we are a unity of body and soul. We're not just physical beings, we're not just material beings, we are spiritual as well. And all the wealth of human activity that we, that we have described indicates that there's more to us than just the physical. The range of activity and the very fact of our free human freedom in that activity, and the very fact, for example, in the addiction problem that we, just, we looked at, that a human being can actually um, find freedom from addiction, an addiction for which he's programmed perhaps genetically, is an indication there is something more to us than just the physical. But we are a unity of body and soul, and we're made in God's image and likeness. The way in which we show that image and likeness is the fact that we have the creative power over matter and over the world and over ourselves um, that is a reflection of God's creative power over the whole of the universe. The whole of the universe reveals to us that God is, is, is the creator, the mind behind it all. Well, we have mind as well. Um, not like, not infinite like, or eternal like God's, but created directly by God in our spiritual nature. And it's that mind which makes us in God's image and likeness. Um, we have this creative, free um, activity um, and power over the world around us. And every human being then has a value beyond the merely physical. We, our bodies are important, but we're more than just our bodies. Um, we have a, a value that reaches beyond the grave. We're wanted by God and created for God. It's an eternal value. So the value of the human person rests on the uniqueness of each person, but also the fact that every person is made in the image and likeness of God. And that we as human beings are an essential component of God's plan. And not only an essential component, but we might say we are the apex of God's plan. Um, no human being is a means to an end. Uh, every human being is an end in themselves. They're wanted by God and created for God. As we're going to see in later talks, we're going to see that the template of who we are and the purpose of who we are as human beings is ultimately to be found in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God made man. Everything was made, says St. Paul, through him and for him. And we're going to see how, how it is that the way in which we are fulfilled as human beings is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Um, but it starts with the fact that our true environment is God. We are spiritual beings 
and physical beings who find um, their ultimate identity in God. But the only way in which we can get to that identity, the only way in which we can get to our goal is through Jesus, by God becoming human like us. enjoyed the second talk in our monthly series. Subscribe if you wish to hear more from us, including the next talk in our monthly series, which will be given by Father Luis Rochello on the disaster of sin on the 11th of March. If you wish to join us for this live on Zoom, booking is now open on our website www.faith.org.uk. If you wish to hear our previous talks, read some of our articles and publications, or learn more about the faith movement in general, again, you can visit our website at www.faith.org.uk or like us on Facebook. Thank you and God bless.